Well, um, today we're going to resume our study that explores the mystery of the Trinity, or one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, when I talk about the mystery of the Trinity, don't mean that the Trinity is unknowable, that He is mysterious and beyond our capacity to comprehend. We wouldn't even be talking about the Trinity if God had not revealed Himself to us in that way. But while there's much that we can and do know, about God the Father, there's, of course, a lot that we can't know about this transcendent and yet imminent God. Transcendent in that He is far above us and imminent that He is near to us, as near as Jesus and as near as the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. I don't know if I asked this a few weeks ago, but would a God that we could fully comprehend truly be God? I mean, if we could completely wrap our mind around Him, if we could understand Him fully, would He really be God? Most of the gods that are worshipped in our world today and that have been throughout all of history have been clearly made in man's image. I mean, even if those gods appear very unpredictable, happy one day, angry the next, they they look very much like humans made large. That's, That's all they are. But our God is so far beyond our ability to fully stand. He's three, understand, He's three, yet He is one, with no contradiction. He's beyond us, and yet near. Well, thus far, we've spent several weeks talking about, just about the doctrine of the Trinity. Then we spent a week talking about God the Father, a week thinking about God the Son, Jesus, and then last time we met talking about the Trinity, three weeks ago we talked about God the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead. All three, Father, Son, and Spirit, have the same nature and are equally God, yet each person of the Trinity has a very distinct role. Uh, Since there's so much confusion about the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, we're going to spend more time thinking about Him. Uh, The goal is to look This morning it's several questions that Christ followers have regarding the Holy Spirit. While it would would certainly be beneficial to spend a lot of time with each one of these subjects, I think it's more helpful for us with our limited time to get as much as we can, many different topics as we can. I think that's more profitable overall. Our text this morning is going to address the first question that we're we're coming to, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You've heard that term a lot. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? We'll also be looking at what the baptism of the Spirit is. We're going to spend more time talking about that that next week, but we're going to get a start at that this morning. Then we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. That's a very popular topic in our day. Next, we'll examine what it means to quench the Spirit. You ever heard that term? Quench the Spirit? Do you know what it means? What does it mean? Well, what about grieving the Spirit? What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? We know what it means to grieve other people and to grieve over other people, but what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? We're going to talk about both of them. And finally, we will spend time contemplating the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to cover all of that this morning. And then in three years... I'm going to run for the office of President of the United States. And I will win. (laughs) 
I'm just kidding about that. It's going to take us three weeks to study this, all these topics about the Holy Spirit. And that changes the overall plan for the series, but I knew that would happen anyway. And I, I think it is the leading of the Holy Spirit as Tim Metz prayed for so eloquently this morning in the prayer time. Well, our text today, Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32, covers the first topic, which is the blasphemy of the Spirit. There's a great deal of confusion about this. seems like every topic you come to about the Holy Spirit, you can say a lot of confusion about this topic. Uh, there's more than a little fear about these difficult and, frankly, harsh words of Jesus. So I, I hope that today's study is going to enlighten your mind and and, and ease your heart a bit if it ever is or has been troubled about this topic. So Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32, would you please stand as we read God's Word together. Then a demon oppressed who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Well, Father, these difficult words to have ringing in our hearts as we come to you, and we pray that you will cause us to have full and complete understanding of what it was that you were saying. Lord, even in advance, I just want to thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and I pray that his presence would, Lord, hold sway this morning in the words that I speak and in the ways that we receive those words. May you be glorified. and May the Son be exalted in our time together this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I wonder how many of you wonder if you've committed that sin, whether you do now or whether at some, some point in your life whether you wondered, have I committed Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The reason you might have thought that is because so many people have different ideas about what that means. 
I don't remember if I did this as a teenager. It would have fit my personality perfectly to do this. I was trying to to deny the existence of God. And I would mock the idea of God in those years before I became a Christian. And I, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have put it past myself at all to have said, and I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, just to let those words come out of my mouth to make a point. That I didn't think God had anything to do with me. What does the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit mean? I mean, it's interesting that Jesus said that, that you could speak against Him, against Jesus, against the Son of Man, and be forgiven, but you couldn't speak against the Holy Spirit. Speak against the Holy Spirit, blaspheme Him, forget it. You're eternally cursed. A little bit, that doesn't really add up, does it, in our thinking. Let, let, let's consider it for a moment. Who is God? Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Yes, both. Who is more God? Either. They're, they're both as much God as the other and as the Father. Jesus wasn't making a statement about the divinity of either person of the Trinity, but clearly, if speaking against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin, then He's got to be God, right? He absolutely... He has to be God. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to say, you know, speak against me who claims to be God, and it's okay, but speak against somebody over here, and that's it. You're done. It makes no sense at all. Jesus wasn't trying to say one is divine, one is not. But clearly, He is indicating that the Holy Spirit is God, but so is Jesus. The term he used for himself, Son of Man, referred back to Daniel's use of this term for one who is divine in seven Daniel 7.13. You know, it's unlikely that Jesus was saying something akin to what we would say when we say, mess with me, that's all right. Mess with my family, you're gonna, we're going to have a little talk. Well, maybe there is some connection because when I say, hey, Mess with me, it's all right. Don't mess with my family. I don't really mean don't mess. This is okay to mess with me. I don't mean that. What I mean is, mess with me or mine, and we're going to have trouble. Maybe Jesus was saying something akin to that. A little context will help us. If you were way back here on January 18th, you may recall, and I know those of you who were here on January 18th do recall this. I know. I don't even have to. In fact, what did I preach on January 18th? Just kidding. You, there's no way you would know that. We were talking about, we were witnessing a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. And, and, and there was a lot of back and forth. And they were saying, you are an illegitimate blasphemer. Talking about your father. And he said, yeah, let me tell you about my father. I know him. I've seen him. I I know exactly who he is. I'm speaking out of personal experience. Your father is the devil. And then he ended up just flat out telling them, I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. I am God. I am eternal. Now, if you really want to understand the unpardonable sin of blasphemy, Against the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you really want to think this through, you may be able to go back to that message online and, 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 or, or just go to John chapter 8 and, and from about 30, verse 32 on, look at the debate between 
Jesus and the Pharisees. Actually, it would be helpful to go back to John chapter 7 where all of these people are saying all these... Same thing you hear about Jesus today. He's a great teacher. No, he's, he's Messiah. Are you kidding me? He's not Messiah. He's from Nazareth, for goodness sake. All of this debate was going on, and then the debate came became very, very specific and pointed in John chapter 8 between Jesus and these religious leaders. And that that kind of stuff that was going on day in and day out for a good year and a half or so before Jesus came to this point where He said, you have blasphemed against the Spirit and it will not be forgiven you. That stuff was going on all the time. You see, the Pharisees experienced direct encounters with Jesus that are not possible for us today. We don't get to have these debates with Jesus in the same way that the Pharisees did. I don't know if this is if you've ever noticed this, but in my experience, when I share the gospel with someone who doesn't know the Lord, if I am sharing and they understand it, and it's clear to me they understand it. They believe. Almost always. Now, there are lots of times I, I share the gospel with someone and they don't get it. It's like I, I, I cannot be more specific. I cannot put it in simpler terms. And yet, it's just like they're blind. And that's what Scripture says. That the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. Lest the light of the glory of Christ should shine unto them. It, it's just, there's a blindness. But when a person understands, they inevitably almost receive. I remember, I, I, I've known times, but one time in particular, back at the camp years ago, there was a girl, in fact, teenage girl, I believe she was from Fuqua came up after one of the sessions, and two or three people were standing around, and she was trying to get this. She just couldn't understand. And we were, you know, we talked probably for about 30 minutes, and then I saw the moment that she got it in her eyes. I mean, I just I saw the moment. In fact, I, I have all ideas that that was the moment that she was born again. And she said the words a few minutes later, but that was the moment that it became clear to her, and she was born again. Pharisees, all of this debate that was going on that day, come entirely different. You see, they got it completely. They understood what was at stake. They understood who Jesus claimed to be, and there was ample evidence that He was who He claimed to be. And Jesus told him in so many words, look, you've got all the evidence you need to know that I'm the Messiah, even if I don't look like the kind of Messiah you were expecting. You see all these people out here? Some amongst your own council, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. These guys get it? You know who I'm claiming to be, and yet you reject it. You see, the Pharisees recognized that if they accepted Jesus, not only would they have to repent of their sins, and humble themselves in front of all the people. But they'd have to give up their power. Because their religious structure had been built for their own advantage. And they held sway, they held power over the people. By saying, 
you got to do this, can't do that. Oh, that one, that's okay. That's not. They expanded the law, they narrowed the law to their own benefit as far as their power was concerned. And, and, and they weren't going to do that. And so Jesus is debating them. Well, first of all, he heals a man, cast out a demon, and they come running and say, Oh, Satan enabled him to do that. Jesus said, Look, you've had ample time. You recognize who I am. And you not only attribute the works of the Holy Spirit to the devil, you seek to turn these people to the same blindness that affects you. You're blind, so you want to gouge their eyes out. You know what? You've crossed the line. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God by whose power I heal the sickness of these people. And this sin will never be forgiven you. Does that make sense? Here's the point I want to drive home this morning. It's highly impossible that we are even able to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit today. It's highly... I would be stunned if any of you have ever committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or anybody that you know. Now, it's possible that the person who rejects God repeatedly, 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 and God says, that's enough. Maybe that's a modern-day application of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I tend to doubt it, and it certainly wasn't what was occurring in our text. It was, the, it was a willful rejection of truth that was literally in front of their faces. They saw it way more clearly than you and I have been able to do in this world 2,000 years removed from Jesus' journey on this earth. So once again, if it's not clear, you really want to know the truth here, go back to John 7 and 8 and then connect it with this passage or go back to the on, uh, to the sermon that's online or go to my blog for a written transcript. The, the written transcript is remarkably close to what you hear on Sunday morning because vary from this transcript, I get in big trouble. Big trouble. So I have to stay pretty close. Well, that's the first topic. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's, now let's take an easy one. Baptism of the Spirit. What does that mean? Have you ever heard have, had someone ask you, Brother? Sister? Have you been baptized by the Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Spirit? Now, when you think about it, saying brother or sister and baptized by the Spirit in the same breath is redundant. If you are a Christ follower, then you've been baptized by the Spirit. It happens at the point of salvation. It perhaps happened with this teenage girl that I was talking with so many years ago, at that moment, I may have seen the moment she was baptized by the Holy Spirit when the light came on in her eyes. As we go to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, you may recall me talking about this in the not-too-distant past. I, I try to do this once or twice a year because of the, of the tremendous amount of misunderstanding and misapplication of this particular doctrine. Maybe we'll do it a little more thoroughly today. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, 
We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. These words are found over halfway through a letter that Paul had written to the church at Corinth. What what kind of church was the church at Corinth? Was it a good church or a troubled church? A big time troubled church. I mean, everywhere you turn, Paul is saying, you got to deal with this. You cannot go on like this. You've got to quit it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, towards the beginning of this book, verses 1 and 2, Paul is lamenting the fact that he couldn't address them as spiritual people, as spiritual Christ followers. He said, I, 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 I want to talk to you about important matters, but I have to speak to you as if you are self-absorbed, fleshly, baby Christians. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Self-absorbed Christian. But that's what they were. So this wasn't a a, a spiritually minded crowd at all that Paul was addressing. Yet he said in in our text that, that all of them who were Christians had been baptized into one body. It was referring to the body of Christ, and the specific point that Paul was making was that all Christians are equal in Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, big division in that day, people in the way people thought, who's more religious, Jews or Gentiles. And leaders and followers even going so far as to say slaves and non-slaves alike. Slaves were very much a part of society in that day, and it was almost unthinkable to free men and women who were free, who were not slaves, to think that those people might be equal with them in a religious kind of a way. Social structures didn't allow for it, but we've got this religious structure in which they're equal. I I wonder, I don't know, I mean, there would just been issues here, but I wonder if in some cases slaves were not elders in the church and held spiritual authority over their masters, their owners. Would be interesting, wouldn't it? So Jesus was saying, all the walls are broken down. We are in one body. And the reason that there's this equality is that every believer has been baptized into the body of Christ. Now, we're talking about carnal, fleshly Christians, we got to understand that this baptism of the Spirit occurred at the point of salvation. It could only have happened at the point of salvation. But what about subsequent times of Spirit baptism in the lives of believers? A lot of people think there is at least a second moving of the Spirit in our lives that takes us to another spiritual plane where there is victory over sin and power to do great works for God. Well, Ephesians 4, 4 and 5 tells us there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, class, is there a significant word that you see in this uh, passage? Just one word's all I'm looking for. One, one, one. There is one spirit 
one Lord, one body, and one baptism. There is no second baptism or second blessing that people talk about. We may be able to look at this next week. We see in the book of Acts where the apostles are filled with the Spirit, and then later it says they were filled again. Being filled with the Spirit is different from being baptized with the Spirit. Two different things. And we need the filling of the Spirit in our lives. We're going to talk about that this week at, in, in home fellowships. But that filling, that empowering of the Spirit in our lives is different from the baptism of the Spirit. But when you start, anytime you start down a road with the wrong premise or the wrong doctrine at your foundation, you can go in a long way. Go a long way. It is important to start off from the right place. Now, seems pretty clear to me from this scripture that we're baptized by the Holy Spirit one time. And the meaning is that the Spirit fully immerses us into the body of Christ, the same body that all others who profess Jesus belong to. Do we always live as if Jesus is Lord of our lives? No. I mean, the Corinthians certainly did not. But we have all been, those of us who profess Jesus as our Savior, have repented of our sins and have believed that Jesus died for us, place our faith and trust in Him, we have all been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. So if someone asks you, have you been baptized by the Spirit? You can say, yes. I absolutely have. It happened when I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And then you can point to these verses as as the foundation for your belief. You need to be aware that they're going to have some verses of their own. And most likely, they're going to be pointing to Acts chapter 8. We, I, I, we're going to be talking about that next week. That, that will support the doctrine that salvation comes at one point, baptism of the Spirit comes later. And then they'll use other passages, Acts 2 and 10 and 19, to show you that often the baptism of the Spirit is accompanied by tongues. Not a, I, I do think tongues are in play in our day. They have not been... God has not used them in most of church history. After the early days, it pretty much went on hold. Until 1903 when they cranked back up in Los Angeles, California. I, I, I think that the miracle gifts still are in operation today, but I think there's a great deal of abuse with those gifts. And we'll, we'll talk about that some next week. It's extremely important. I want to say this now, and, and again, follow up next week. It's, it's extremely important to recognize the nature of the Gospels in the book of Acts when we're forming doctrine and trying to understand how God works in our lives today. Everything that He did back then is not necessarily the way that He does it today. The Gospels, of course, tell the story of Jesus' redemptive work. Much of Jesus' teaching wasn't understood even by His disciples until after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and enlightened them. I mean, they didn't get it at all. Had no idea much of the time what he was talking about. I always, you know, um, 
am a, am a bit amused when people talk about, oh, I love to read those stories of Jesus. His teaching was so simple. He used agricultural metaphors that everybody could understand, but it wasn't simple. It's not, we can't figure it out today. I mean, we have difficulty. Those of us who believe essentially the same thing have different understanding of what he meant here, what he meant there. So the Gospels tell us the story of Jesus' redemptive work. And then the book of Acts tells the story of how the Gospel of Jesus spread to the whole world. This entire period was a time of transition. When the, when the Holy Spirit moved from coming alongside of people to work in their lives to being in them. Now, if you were at Home Fellowship a couple of weeks ago, you discussed this. In John 14, Jesus said, The Spirit is with you and He shall be in you. He's going to be in you. Right now He is with you. That's the way the Holy Spirit worked in the ultimate. That's why David said, and we sang in this song today, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now David didn't understand that the Spirit of God was actually the third person of the Trinity. He didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. He thought he saw the Spirit of God as, a, as an extension of God. Yet, he did recognize that the presence and the power of God could move from him very quickly because of this great sin of adultery and murder that he had committed. And, and so we beg God not to remove His presence. That prayer is actually, though we sang it this morning, it's a beautiful song, that, that the Spirit is good. That's because we're really praying the same thing that David prayed. Lord, don't remove Your power from me. I realize that I have sinned, and I realize that I don't deserve for You to be working through me like this. But it's not really a legitimate prayer for today. Lord, don't take Your Spirit from me. So there was a huge transition going on here. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God was one way before the cross and he was another way after or another way after Pentecost. He's God is the same yesterday, today and forever. We've always been saved by grace through faith. The faith of the Old Testament saints was in a different object than ours is. Ours is in Jesus. Theirs was in the promises of God as best they understood them because God had not revealed himself to them as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with all the implications of Jesus' death on the cross. But during this period of transition, the Lord did a lot of things to say, I'm doing a new thing. I am, from now on, your faith is not just in the promises of God, and certainly not in the keeping of the law, never had been. Although it sure seemed that way. Romans, Galatians both tells us that Abraham was saved by faith. Same way we are. It's just that his faith was in the promises of God, not in Jesus. So, God was showing the world, now you'll believe in Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit has come to live in you. And here's evidence that this great change has occurred. Much of the Spirit's work that was done at these crucial points of redemptive history is misunderstood and misapplied by Christ's followers today, especially with regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important for us to make sure that the epistles or the letters written by the apostles to the, to the churches around 
the kingdom around, not the, the Roman Empire, but the kingdom of God in that day, enlighten what was said and done in the Gospels and the book of Acts. We have to go to the epistles to to make sure they back up whatever doctrine we may derive from the Gospels and Acts. Now, I'm not saying that we, we can't know truth from the Gospels and Acts. We know a whole lot about truth from the Gospels and Acts. But it's important that we understand that how the Word of God is structured and it all fits together. And sometimes things don't make sense to us here, but they're cleared up over here. And if you try to build something from the Gospels or the book of Acts, you can get in trouble if it's not confirmed and affirmed in the epistles. If that doesn't seem clear to you today, hopefully it will make more sense next week as we go through the book of Acts and look at the different ways uh, God revealed himself to different groups of people. Well, in preparation for next week, I want to read one of the New Testament passages about spiritual gifts and then just offer the briefest of comments. I'm going to look at a few verses in 1 Corinthians 12. Verses 4 to 7. The first three verses set up this section. But I assumed it would be about 1028 right now, so I didn't include those verses. We're going to just look at verses 4 to 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. First of all, did you catch Paul's Trinitarian theology here? Spirit in verse 4, Lord or Jesus. Remember, the Lord term Lord is almost always referring to Jesus in the New Testament. Greek word kurios. And then... God, clearly, in this context, God the Father. Verse 7 sums up the purpose for spiritual gifts. And you see this same purpose in every single instance in the New Testament where you see a list of spiritual gifts. You're going to see that this week in home group. They're given to us for the purpose of building up one another. And this is very important. The spiritual gifts are not given to us so that we might have power to do great things for God or even to improve our relationship with God. Spiritual gifts are given to us to build one another up. If I have the gift of hospitality, that means I open my home and my heart to you so that you can grow closer to Christ. If I have the gift of prophecy or preaching, then I do that. That's the way I do it. If I have the gift of service, then I'm setting up and tearing down chairs. And I'm the first one to sit up and and tear down the chairs for the work that goes on here that's kingdom work. And it's so that others can benefit. My my gifts are always intended to be used for the benefit of others. You're going to see that. In Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 5, all those places are four. 1 Peter, that, that the gifts are given to use to build one another up. They're, you're used for the common good or they're given for the common good. One of the gifts that we're going to look at next week is the, the gift of tongues. And as I've already stated, I, I think it's in play today. Although I think it's off, often misunderstood and misused. Well, 
that's all the time that we have this morning. But two and a half out of six ain't too bad. I don't suppose it ain't too shabby. We're going to talk um, a lot more next week, and then we're going to skip a week because Mike Calhoun is coming here on March 29th, and you do not, you do not want to miss that day. Please be here for that, and then we'll get back to it fully and completely uh, during the first Sunday in, um, in April. Well, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer.